I, uh, I saw a, a comic on the internet this week. It was a Maxine comic. Have you ever seen those? You know who Maxine is? Maxine is that grumpy lady with the small dog, and she always shows up in the funnies, and she's always complaining about something. Um, maybe you know a Maxine or two. Maybe you are Maxine. I don't know. But this week I happened to see Maxine standing under that star of Matthew chapter 2, I guess, in the comic, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And Maxine grumbled, It's too bad the star from the east hasn't turned up over Washington. We sure could use a few wise men up there. Maybe not the greatest joke in the world, but number one, I don't think that could ever be outdated. I think that joke is always going to be relevant until Christ comes back. And number two, I thought you'd appreciate it this morning as an icebreaker rather than on Christmas Sunday. So I got it out of the way. But we're going to continue talking all about the humble God in which we serve. Uh, that's kind of the point of this sermon series that we're in now, the submission of the Christ. And last week in part one, we discussed how Jesus existed eternally up through the incarnation. John chapter one referred to Jesus as the word or logos in the Greek. We described how Jesus is present before his incarnation throughout the Old Testament, wherever the Godhead is present. And for example, in the act of creation, in the book of Genesis, we see this here, uh, even implied in the original Hebrew. And last week we prescribed for the Christ follower following the Son's act of submission to the Father in all that we do. In God taking on the flesh of a man, of a human being, he set the greatest human example for all of us. This is why I believe what I believe works, why I believe Christianity gives us the answers we seek as people. This week as we continue to build up towards a special Sunday before Christmas celebration together, it's fitting that we not only talk about the manner in which the King of Kings came to us, that is, humbly and submissively as one of us, but specifically why why Jesus came to us. And most of us can probably answer that question, you know, without thinking on it too long. Well, why did Jesus came, uh, come to us? Why did he come to us? He came to die on the cross for us. That's right. He came to die on the cross for us from all eternity. And this is the part that really gets me. From all eternity, even back at the Garden of Eden, Jesus knew he was going to crash land someday in human history just to make the ultimate sacrifice for humankind out of complete and total submission to the will of the Father and out of his love for his creation. Sometimes I wonder, why did he go ahead and go through the creation process anyway, right? Why were we worth it? But the question this morning that I want to ask is, when did we know? When did we know, friends, from our Bibles that a Savior was someday coming our way? And the answer is the same as he. We knew back at the Garden of Eden. We knew back at the Garden of Eden. Turn back to Genesis with me for the details. Our text comes today from Genesis 3. And we're going to read this uh, stretch of text from verses 1 through 15. This is not too long after the first man and woman originated, in fact. It's a sad story about uh, paradise for humankind lost. But fortunately, it also tells us how God's plan 
for one day his people may be found as well. Follow with me. As I switch from coffee to water. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we're going to jump down and grab verse 19 as well here. God says this to Adam. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And, and we'll stop there. Now, by omitting verses 17 and 18, of course, here in the text, we're, we're, jump, we're, we're jumping past the Lord's punishment upon the man and the woman, uh, men and women alike, in this life for sinning against him. From this point forward on the timeline up to today, there will be very specific, we might say, struggles which are going to affect humankind because we chose to disobey God in this life, right? It will no longer be paradise to live. All of man's necessities will not just be provided quite so easily as they were when we were in Eden. Uh, man and woman relationships, the giving of childbirth will be difficult. Anybody here have those easy? Raise your hand. Didn't think so. Just, just want to make sure. Work will become a struggle for everyone, universally. The aches and the pains and the inconveniences and the atrocities and the evil that you and I today must continue to bear and suffer, it's all because of Genesis 3, 17 and 18. 
But the man and the woman in the garden wouldn't just go on to experience a difficult, painful life. They would also be cursed to die. Verse 19. Verse 19. Can you imagine that day in the garden? Can you imagine that day in Eden? Some of us have, have, we've read, we've heard this Genesis account of, of the fall of man many times, but this morning, really put yourself in the place of Adam or of the woman. Interestingly enough, uh, the, uh, she didn't actually get that name Eve until after the curse, according to Scripture, Genesis 3.20. But put yourself in their shoes, or lack of, as the case may be. Did you know, by the way, that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were the easiest couple to tell just who wore the pants in the family? I apologize already for that one. She's shaking her head over here. But put yourself in their place. Put yourself in the place of Adam and Eve here in the garden. You've got everything. Everything. I mean, and you've got everything provided to you by God. This is paradise. Absolute paradise. There's no heat bill. Uh, there's no groceries to buy. There's no taxes to pay. As far as we can tell from Scripture at this time, there, there's, there's not any other mouths to feed either. Uh, there, there's, there's no socialism. You're thriving in your work, Genesis 2.15. It's being directly given to you by God. It's a creative work. You know what Adam's job was? It was pretty cool. The Bible says God is, is making animals and birds and sending them over to you and letting you name the things. That's a cool job. Work is fun and, and life is fun. And, you know, I would assume that play for Adam and Eve is fun too. You've got these rivers, the, these natural wonders. They're, the, they're flowing out of your home and in every direction. Uh, verses 10 to 14 in Genesis 2 say this. It's just you and your spouse. You're in perfect physical shape. And there, there's no internet or TV or radio or, or briefcase or published reading material. There's also plenty of time for just kicking back under a beautiful Eden sunset in a beautiful garden arrangement for you and your spouse to just enjoy each other's company, right? Think about it. Do you ever hear somebody say to you, you know, I'm living the dream. You're asking them how they're getting along or how they're doing, and oftentimes, jokingly, they'll say back to you, I'm living the dream. Well, this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're truly living the dream. One man, one woman made specifically for one another. Think on this. There, there, there were no growing pains of childhood, no sorrow, no trouble, no back problems, and their relationship was perfectly harmonious and incredibly uncomplicated. There's an old story that says that no one has ever had it, it any better relationally than Adam and Eve as a couple. He didn't have to hear all about all the men that she could have married, and she didn't have to hear about the way his mother cooked things. But it was just the two of them. God who was present. God was there personally with them, personally developing a relationship with them. But there's a little catch here. There's, there's this serpent, this uh, Satan. This same fallen being that get this, by the time we get to the end of our Bibles, see this is the beginning, by the time we get to the end of our Bibles in the uh, Revelation chapter 13, now we get Satan and now he's a dragon. This Satan has it in for Adam and Eve. Now picture it's you where God has given you everything meant for your good in this earthly heaven. The devil is poised to strike and ready to drag you down to hell, but first he just needs your permission to make it happen. 
Perhaps we're tempted today to say, well, I would have never listened to that serpent. If this was me in this story, I wouldn't have fallen for it. I, I wouldn't have been deceived like Adam and Eve. But, but yet, let's be honest. I mean, let's be honest about it. I can tell you personally, at least from my own experience and perspective, how easy it is to be deceived by the devil when he makes something look and sound good. How often does the devil say, for example, to full-grown Christian men, go ahead, see her, check her out. See that woman walking by? What harm is it to anybody? Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that look good? Yeah, it does. But my Bible also says that looking at a woman I'm not married to with lust is committing adultery in my heart. That's a sin. Matthew 5, 28. Right? But the devil, boy, he makes something look and sound good. We wouldn't fall for the devil. We wouldn't fall for his deception today. But I'm curious, and this isn't a problem for your preacher, but do you realize how often, for example, our brothers in Christ are deceived in marriages, even lives potentially affected or ruined today by the same lie in pornography use? Do you realize that statistically and shockingly, 68% of Christian men, Christian men, 50% of pastors view pornography regularly? One Christian organization reports that the porn industry is globally worth $70 billion. So don't be too sure of yourselves, friends, that Christians aren't just biting into. They're celebrating forbidden fruit behind closed doors. We continue to be deceived. Someone has said, Satan will flood you with truth to float one lie, and it's true. He'll tell you what sounds right, what sounds good to get you to do what's wrong. Sometimes it doesn't matter if we've been taught. If God has told us what's wrong, not just in regards to adultery or lust, but maybe with greed, with laziness, with anger, maybe with smearing someone's character. Are we above these restrictions just because we're Christians? We need these restrictions to thrive in the Lord. Our God gave Adam and Eve one restriction, right? Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.15. And then God gave them the complete freedom to choose whether they would do so. But Satan turned this couple's fixation, you'll notice in the text, to the way the temptation looked. The word says how good that fruit appeared to them. And then he, he threw in a great story to make the cell that they should give in to his big fat lie. Satan said, your eyes will be opened by the eating of the fruit, which was true. Genesis 3, 5. Their eyes were certainly open, right? But here comes the lie. Eating of the tree made Adam and woman, not like God, like the serpent. The devil knows what's going to look good to you. He knows that about you, but the maker of the universe knows what's best for you. This is why we have these restrictions. This is why. Look back at verse 8 in our text with me. Right after Adam and the woman choose the lie over the Lord. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool uh, of the day, and the man and his wife hid, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's interesting. As Tim Keller writes, the fact that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, this was a regular thing. This wasn't just a one-time thing. 
This was a regular occurrence, a practice. God was, was coming in wanting friendship, seeking this relationship, and we hid. Sin is running from God who wants a relationship with us. That's why he made us. Tim Keller continues, The one thing we don't want to believe is that we're utterly dependent on God. We want to think we need God occasionally. Maybe once in a while, maybe never. But in our heart of hearts, we know we're utterly dependent on Him. We see this in the text, Genesis 3.12. And don't you like how, what happens? What happens after, after they run, after they hide? The man deliberately throws his wife under the bus trying to save his neck. And it's worth, no, it's worth noting, too, that Adam, after sinning, trying to pass the buck like he does, basically becomes the first Bill Clinton. It was this woman you put here with me, Lord! That's one of my favorite uh, political references. So. But what's heartbreaking, is, as Keller notes this in his writing, is as soon as sin has come in, in, into the hearts of Adam and Eve in the garden, verse 7, what happens to their relationships? Relationships with God, relationships with each other, the, these relationships they were created to have are destroyed. Adam and Eve are hiding. They, they hide themselves not only from God, they hide, they hide themselves from each other as, as well, or at least they try to, verse 7, with some fig leaves. And after giving into sin, Adam and Eve, they can't make the situation right again, can they? They try. But they're not like God, as the devil said to them earlier, as he lied to them, not at all. On the contrary, they're desperate for the one true God in their lives. But what's amazing is even though Adam and Eve fail to cover what's been physically uncovered, what's been exposed, their bodies with some fig leaves, in his mercy, what does God do? He provides garments of skin later in verse 21 for them. Isn't that interesting? God is still there. God still loves them. God still desires to be with Adam and Eve even after they throw him under the bus. Amazing. But the covering God is going to ultimately provide for humankind is an animal skin. Ultimately, it will actually be himself. For that's all we've ever needed. And as soon as we fell from God's grace, this is the best part of all this. This is where we're getting to this morning. We were told God would be offering his grace back to us in time. Let's read Genesis 3.15 again where God says to the serpent, here's the good news. It's even called the, the uh, proto-evangelicon, if I'm getting the word right, meaning good news, follow up to the good news. 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when Adam and Eve then leave paradise, uh, they may have been a people banished. But praise God, they already had a Savior promised. They already had a Savior promised. You may not find the name Jesus here in the Old Testament of the Bible, but Genesis 3.15 of the first book of the Old Testament is the first mention of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. Isn't that incredible? One author writes, No verse in the Bible is even more crucial and definitive than Genesis 3.15. It establishes a principle that's going to run throughout the entire Old Testament. It creates an expectation of a Redeemer a redeemer who will be a descendant or a seed 
of this couple. A Savior promised. It establishes perimeters by which God is going to redeem His people from their sin. A Savior promised. When Adam and Eve fail to obey the terms of their covenant or agreement with God given to them in Genesis 3.6, God doesn't destroy them. What does He do? He reveals grace to them. Doesn't just show them grace with covering of animal skin, but with the grace of a Savior through their bloodline. A Savior promised. Hebrews 9.22 will later say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just to tuck that back in your minds. Guess what's going to happen, too, to our old friend, the devil? We can turn to Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 10, to look at this. Because we've read how the Bible begins, and this is how it ends. Best news ever. It says, And the devil who had deceived them, them being us, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I saw a meme online I liked once that, that said, sorry, Satan, I, I've read the end of this book and guess what? You lose. Praise God. We have a Savior promised, my friends. Amen. When we look back from today, we see Jesus defeated sin on the cross 2,000 years ago, and all who follow him in turn receive the promises of their Savior. Looking forward, Jesus is going to defeat the very first sinner, Satan himself, casting him into hell, and all who follow him will receive a different kind of promises. Satan may have thought, even though he didn't defeat us entirely in the garden, he'd surely defeated Jesus at the cross temporarily. You shall bruise his heel. But ultimately, Jesus is going to destroy Satan forever. He shall bruise, some translations say, crush your head. Although we fell in the garden, may have been paradise lost in this place, but our promised Savior will raise us up to glory where he dwells. Amen. Sometimes you'll meet Christians who are afraid of death, afraid of dying. We run across this. As, as we get older, it, it tends to be more on our mind than when we're younger. But if your faith is in a promised Savior, the Bible says to be, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. There's not going to be a time lapse for you. To be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. I realize the subject of death is practically the greatest taboo today, right? I was uh, more excited to tell my eldest daughter where babies came from than I was to talk about what happens when we die. This is coming from a preacher. One of the most significant conversations I remember having uh, already over the last uh, few years with, with my kids uh, was in regards to death, and it presented itself during an early walk we took together around the church building across the street. Well, preacher, you did go to the cemetery, you know. So, What are these decorations for, you might hear from a child? You might hear other questions. You might get to the point where you say, we should have just walked around the farmer in the dell, you know. But I was asked, why are there so many stones? What are these rocks for? What are they doing here? And child, you may think, I, I wish I didn't have to tell you. I wish I didn't have to explain. Why the stones? What's the reason for the decorations in this cemetery? I wish I didn't have to go there. I wish that wasn't necessary. 
You stumble around for answers to such questions when you're a parent sometimes. Maybe you'll respond with some questions of your own. Remember that old kitty you used to have, honey? Maybe you'll, you'll work up to asking. Remember that time we traveled uh, to Indiana for mommy's aunt's funeral? We talked about this a little then. And just, just from living and loving uh, several furry friends, uh, you know, I think especially of, of Emmy, she knows all about death and loss and separation. As her daddy is someone who, by her age, already lost a, a father and an older brother, I wish she didn't have to have this knowledge. I really do. I feel she shouldn't have to experience these things. They're not natural. They're not normal. Not conversations I want to have. And you know, I wonder if the Lord feels the same way about us. Child, I wish I didn't have to send you this part of the book. Genesis. I wish you didn't have to know all these parts of my word that deal with death. You weren't supposed to have to experience these things. They're not natural. Do you think our Heavenly Father feels the same way? But where I can't help soften the blow of the lesson about death for my children when they lose someone or something to which they love, to which they're attached, God allowed for loss for his children in this life, but he also promised this life wouldn't be the end. A Savior promised means this. Yes, life will hurt, but not for long. But not for long. It's important, friends, though, that we, the church, remember the promises of God's word regarding what Jesus has done, what Jesus is going to do. And let's get started early. Today, no matter your age, no matter where you are in this life, hang on to those I don't believe it's going to get any easier for us without those promises of a Savior. Each one of us will come to a point in our lives when we're going to have to hang our hat on the hope of a promised Savior and nothing else. Dr. Kubler-Ross in On Death and Dying shares the following story of caring for a terminally ill individual who was somewhat ready to place themselves in, in, in the arms of the Lord, and yet he found he was still in conflict over the business, over the cares of this world. The doctor writes, Mr. P was a man in his mid-50s who looked about 15 years older than his age. The doctors felt that he had only a poor chance to respond to treatment, partially because of his advanced cancer and malnutrition, mainly because of his lack of fighting spirit. Mr. P had his stomach removed because of cancer five years prior to his hospitalization, and at first he accepted his illness quite well and was full of hope. But as he grew weaker, grew thinner, Mr. P became increasingly depressed until the time of his readmission when a chest x-ray revealed metastatic tumors in his lungs. At one visit, doctor continues, I looked at him questioning, questioningly. He proceeded to tell me with a weak, soft voice that his wife had just come to visit him. She was convinced that, that he, he was going to make it out of there. She expected him home soon to take care of the garden, take care of the flowers. She, uh, she'd reminded him of his promise to uh, retire, to move to Arizona, to have a few more good years. 
He talked with warmth and affection about his, his daughter, 21 years old, who came to visit him from college, who was shocked to see him fighting for his life. And Mr. V mentioned all these things as if he was to be blamed for disappointing his family, for not living up to their expectations. Dr. Kubler-Ross continues, Mr. V then talked about all the regrets he had, that he'd spent the first few years of his marriage accumulating material goods, trying to just, quote, make a good home. By doing so, spent most of his time away from home and family. Now, after the occurrence of cancer, he spared every moment to be with them, but, but by then it, it seemed to be too late. His daughter was away at school, had her own friends, for example. The account concludes, at the end of his life, Mr. P was not so much concerned about pain and physical discomfort or even in question about what was ahead for him as he was tortured by the thought of personal failure. He would smile and say, let me take this treatment. Let me go home again. I'll return to work the next day. I'll make a bit more money. That would make dying so much easier. I can't speak for Mr. P's family after the man passed. But I can tell you this from personal experience. My family and I would have given back every bit of money my father ever made if we could have beaten death on the day he died. And maybe some of you can relate and would agree with the sentiment that although we would much prefer this life on our own terms, we're on God's terms. We don't like restrictions. We don't like to be held back. But we had that opportunity once a few thousand years ago. And whether we like it or not, there's no paradise on this earth we can have in which we're in control. But you know what? That's okay. Our God knows best anyway. He really does. And that's the message of that collection of books we've been given called the Bible. May God's people comfort one another by the words of this book, cover to cover, by our trusting in and following Jesus, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter our circumstances, no matter how good or rough we're having it. We have the hope of a Savior promised. He's going to make everything okay. He promises this. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that in this life, although we once had such an easy relationship with you, and although we, we threw that away, and although we suffer day to day and things seem out of control to us, Lord, we haven't lost your love. We haven't lost your grace or your mercy. Lord, from the, from the, from the very time that, that, that sin was ushered into this world, that we fell for the lie of Satan, you were already there and you already had a plan to make everything, to make everything okay for us again. Lord, I pray that we would 
we would accept you. I pray that we would accept your plan. I pray that we would, we would surrender to your plan and receive those promises. Lord, your, your word says that you require that, that, that we be living sacrifices. And this is the least we can do to respond to the sacrifice that you've made for us. Lord, our word says that, that you are our Father, that you love us. That can't ever change. We know that you can't ever love us anymore or any less. And this is a promise that we have every day when we get up in the morning, no matter the struggles we face, no matter how much the devil has, has deceived us or, or the, the evil and the hurt and the pain that we have to deal with. There is still one that has gone before us and has shown us the way back to you. Lord, I thank you for that promise that was given to us in the garden. Even though we said we didn't want you, even though we said we knew better, even though we said, I want to be God too, you still stepped in with grace. Grace won out. Lord, I thank you. We thank you for always knowing best and always showing us. Help us, Lord, to, to hang on to your promises or to hang on to them stronger today than we did yesterday. Help us to truly follow you in all that we do. Because, Lord, there's, there's a world around us that they need delivery from death to. Lord, we, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. And we can't wait for the day that everything is made right again. It is in the, in the, in the holy name of Jesus. I pray these things, amen. You know, there's a second part to this this morning. We've, we've received these promises of God's word. We have to accept them. We have to grab a hold of them and we have to follow them until he returns for us. And that's the part of this I, I don't want you to miss out on. God has done so much for us. He just wants us to follow him home. If you haven't yet made that decision, go down into the, those waters of baptism. Come up a new creature, the Bible says. Forgiven with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Begun to receive those promises of grace. We invite you to, to do that. Or if you have another decision that you'd like to make today, maybe you're already a baptized believer and, and you want to place your membership with us here at Ferris Church of Christ, we, we invite you to do that as we stand and, and sing all about this promise that we have from eternity onto eternity. He is in control. He is in charge. Forever will he reign. Would you stand and sing?